Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It's my particular pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, an outstanding artist, Ruth Weisberg, who in addition to being a professor of fine arts and a former dean at the USC Roski School, is currently the director of the USC Initiative for Israeli Arts and Humanities, where I sit together with you uh, in the advancement of the Israeli cultural presence in LA and on campus. Uh, She's received numerous awards. Most impressively, she has had major exhibitions here in our hometown in Los Angeles at some of the leading cultural institutions and museums, such as the Norton Simon Museum, the Skirball Museum, and a solo exhibition at the Huntington Museum in San Marino, one of our legacy institutions. Her work is held in over 60 major museum collections internationally. I could go on, but most of all, I want to welcome you, Ruth, and thank you for joining us on the Bully Pulpit. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Among the media in which you're particularly prominent is printmaking. And I want to ask you to share for an audio audience What's so special about the printmaking process? And if you're willing uh, to speak, not just from the artistic perspective, because I know that there's a tactile and artistic quality which is unique to it, but also, frankly, from a Jewish perspective, because when we talk about prints, we you know, think of text and Jewish ideas. What is it about the printmaking medium that so draws you? Well, you're right. Part of it's the history. It's uh, print, Printmaking has always been more socially involved. When you think back to Goya and even some prints of Durer's and Rembrandt's, there's a kind of awareness of society that there isn't always in painting. Also, there's a whole history of political broadsides. You know, whatever side you were on, some anti-Reformation, there's also some very heinous anti-Jewish propaganda. So you're getting at the, the function of printmaking as being a mass medium and its reproducibility. Relatively mass medium historically. I mean, right. Even for art. Even for art, right, yes. So that history intrigues and adds to an intense interest that's just visceral, you know. Mm-hmm. Right from the very beginning, I was responding to the copper plate and the inks and the acids and the resists. And, I mean, it, it has a tactility and a beauty in the kind of raw materials that is very seductive. And that, combined with my sense of its history, makes it very appealing. In terms of Jewish art, which, of course, is of intense interest of mine, and I have taught history of Jewish art here at University of Southern California, Jews come to most art mediums pretty late because we were excluded from the kind of guilds and apprenticeships that would allow you to do these things. So really it's the beginning of the 19th century when there are Jewish artists that are doing things other than weaving talit or doing paper cutting or maybe some illuminated manuscripts. Oh yeah, or artisanal printing. Or, right, yeah. right. As a matter of fact, I am descended on my mother's side from a family that wove talit. Oh wow. Which I think is very interesting because it was one of the few artistic endeavors really open to Jews. Would you agree that there's a stereotype or a myth out there that Jewish absence in the visual arts has to do with the prohibition against the image of God in, in the Ten Commandments? 
if you do agree that that's a predominant theory explaining the absence of Jews in the arts. I don't think that explains the absence of Jews at all. I think it's you much agree? more sociological. I mean, all you have to do is look at Dura Europa's fourth century Synagogue. amazing mural cycle. You do recognize that it's, it's a, an old saw, that you yes. hear it all the time, but you disagree with it. I think as, you as hear it less uh, now than yeah. you used to. Fortunately, because of people like me saying, no, that's just not true. And these were the reasons why we, we weren't as active in the visual arts. And of course, once the floodgates opened and we were allowed to be right. visual artists, my God, look, the percentages of Jewish visual artists is, is stunning. Right, stunning. the disproportionate. Yes, right. a disproportionate number of people in the art world in all roles, but certainly as artists. With respect to the exclusionary component that you mentioned about Jews not being able to be members of the guilds and everything, it gets to a quality of art that I think we are disassociated with today, which is the professional or the, uh, what's the word, the, the guild-like, I'm trying to look for a word, it's a it's a métier, it's a job in, in the pre-modern world. It's a... I wouldn't say quite a job. I think that's the wrong word. I think it always had aspects of being a calling. And there were long apprenticeships, you know. You didn't go to the art supply store and buy your paint in tubes. You, know, you right. had to grind, learn to grind your paints and prepare the ground for the painting. I mean, there was... A, chemistry and... There was an awful lot that you had to learn technically because it wasn't provided by a whole commercial sector the way it is now. And yet the products and the production of the products was commercialized. They had these large schools, there were technicians, there were, there were the, is it not the case that in the schools of Venice, for example, there were artists who were effectively to art what drafters are to architecture today? Yes, yeah, that, that's a good characterization. But often you were moving through a hierarchy. I mean, oh, some okay. people indeed got stuck doing the scut work. Right, right. But a lot of people are moving through a system of training. And arriving at a place where it's not merely production, but or expression. Yes, yes, yes. Within certain parameters, you know, because you were serving one patron or another, the church right. or a aristocratic hierarchy. But in that ladder and that professionalization, the exclusion of the Jews historically prior to the Enlightenment or Emancipation, um, that exclusion was very powerful. It really did exclude. It was hard for Jews to break in and to do that. Yes. I mean, it was unthinkable, actually. Women were also excluded, but if you were, you know, the painter's daughter, sometimes there was a way in. What's the flip side of the coin, then? Why do you think that there is a Jewish disproportion now that the floodgates are open of artists? Actually, when you think about it, all artistic expression, musical, theatrical, visual, there's a huge number of Jewish people. We, we are attracted to the arts as a mode of expression. And interestingly, kind of all the other roles, you know, the impresario, mm -hmm. the theater owner. Right, right, right. This desire to express which we're very familiar with in terms of words, yeah. really moves into all areas where we're allowed in. I think of all the musicians who are Jewish. Right. So I'd like to talk about one of your pieces. It's a piece that I connect with in particular because I've seen it in a number of Jewish homes, including my own. It's a lithograph that depicts a woman in a towel uh, entering what I suppose may be a, a, a different perhaps a different dimension that uh, evokes or, or depicts 
the Shoah. And the reason I want to ask you that is not only because I've seen it in a number of homes, but also because it picks up on two themes that you've already mentioned and I know are loom large in your work. The specific perspective of a woman and the specific perspective of a Jew. And so I wonder if this lithograph is a good uh, launching off point for you to talk about that. It is a good launching off point, but it's interesting to me what your interpretation of the imagery is. And I certainly have referred to the show a, a lot in my work. I am of the generation where the show had a huge impact and was not a second or third hand story necessarily. I was close to people who survived the concentration camps. It was extremely formative. And I always had the, you know, there but for the grace of God. So it is very much in my work and referred to in my work. That particular print, if you look carefully, the people are not necessarily from the Shoah. They're kind of late 19th century. It's a crowd scene. We don't know where they're going. Mm -hmm. It's much more ambiguous. It's more really, I think, about life and afterlife than mm -hmm. it is specifically about the Shoah. So there is an element of this woman entering into a different plane of consciousness. Absolutely, a, absolutely. But you're saying it's evocative of some kind of past that's more complicated or textured than just... Than just the show. Right. Yes. Well, no. Not that I, that's not yeah, textured, yeah. yes. Uh, let's not say just the show. That doesn't... Yeah. That's not a good idea. Uh, more multivalent than that particular historical yes. chapter. Yes, You've identified autobiography as one of the sources of inspiration for your artwork. Tell us a little bit about that autobiography. I was born in Chicago, spent my first 16 years there. My father was a Chicago architect, which was a gift because he adored Chicago and really I had a wonderful introduction to Chicago architecture, especially, but lots of other aspects too. My mother, as I'm fond of saying, was president of everything she ever was part of. <laughs> I always saw her up at the podium, you know, with Robert's Rules of Order, whatever. <laughs> she was very effective. She was involved in Illinois politics and on the first commission on the status of women in Illinois and all kinds of things. I chose my parents very well. Yeah, well done. And I went every Saturday during this year, not over the summers, but during the year, to the Chicago Art Institute Junior School. So from the age of six onward, I was taking art classes and seeing every exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago multiple times, because I would see the show that was up. I saw the Picasso show in the early 50s every week that it was there, which was like eight weeks. So I had a kind of precocious art education and certainly a, a very wonderful series of teachers, the most famous of whom is uh, Emmanuel Jacobson who was also the teacher of Judy Chicago. I went then to Michigan, University of Michigan, was very impatient with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to do printmaking until I was a junior. That was not so okay with already me. Already you were... No, I was already very attracted to printmaking. I hadn't done it, but I those copper plates called to me. And I convinced my father, which wasn't difficult, that I should go to Italy for a semester or a year Instead, I stayed for three years, got an Italian degree, saw firsthand, which had a tremendous influence on me, the great masterworks of Italian art, you know, all the frescoes. That really had a huge impact that I was seeing things in person, and it wasn't in books, because 
it was so clear to me that the art of the past spoke to us. Great art doesn't close itself off. You continue to be able to interact with it, and that's fundamental to my art. I have a lot of art historical references. I'm really in conversation with the artists I admire, and it's a respectful conversation. During my artistic career, during certain periods, you know, the only way of approaching the past was, ironically, think mm -hmm. of Warhol. Right, right. Uh, this was the opposite of my attitude, and I had to kind of fight for that at the yeah, beginning. Did you pay a price for that? Yeah, for I, that did. I did. That? Yeah. But it was worth it, and I couldn't be any different anyway. You right, know? right. And now, I must say, it's much more acceptable. That's very nice that it is, and I think it's wonderful for younger artists, but I'd be doing it anyway, frankly because it's who I am. Is there something about Italian culture that lives with its art in a way that you learn from that we don't live in and with our art here, our visual art, I mean, in America? Absolutely. You know, part of it is the influence of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. very enlightened about art and commissioning art and supporting artists. Right, through and, the centuries. Of right. And I think it is interesting that I am the Jewish person in Los Angeles who is most involved as a friend of uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah. I'm, for years, have been on the committee at the cathedral that commissions art very ambitiously. I'm also on the committee at the Caruso Catholic Center for the commissioning of art, and a lot of this has to do with Gail Garner Roski, who's a dear friend, but also a great patron of the arts and very involved in the Catholic. So she brought world. you into their she conversation. She brought me into their, the their conversation. Commission. And interestingly, you know, as the lone non-Catholic, I have a valuable role to play. Right, right. I'm sure that yeah. they give you a voice. Right. This does open the discussion about your artistic contribution to the series of stained glass windows at Our Savior Parish which is part of the USC Catholic Center, the Caruso Catholic Center. You produced two stained glass windows on the wall of the entrance, to the right and to the left right, of, of the, the main entrance. entrance. Mm -hmm. um, describe, if you would, those two sure. windows. They are referring to the Old Testament, the first window that I did was the first four days of creation. They wanted the, the beginning of days and the end of days. Well, the beginning of days is fine. Pretty, pretty the Genesis, yeah, right, yes. Right. The end of days, we don't have an end of days, really. Not so clearly articulated. Yes. I ultimately proposed that I should do the visions of Ezekiel, which I think actually made a wonderful bridge to the imagery in the church, because 800 plus years before the four evangelists, Ezekiel is talking about the lion, the man, the ox, and the eagle. So where does the imagery of the four evangelists come from? It comes from Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 1, the uh, chariot of Ezekiel, the celestial yes, chariot exact, to which you exactly, refer. Exactly, exactly. And I have at the top of that window the chariot. I don't have God in the chariot. In place of God, the wheels within wheels, mm -hmm. because I'm not going to depict God. Right. I was very pleased with the opportunity that 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 exploration of Ezekiel gave me to find, in some cases, bridges to imagery, Christian imagery. Interesting. Images because of the connection with the four evangelists, uh, evangelists in particular, or is there, is there more? There is more. Oh, the, oh yes. There's, tell us some of the other bridges. Well, there's the, the Valley of the Dried Bones. The Dried Bones, right, which is, which is an end-of-days image. Right. 
Right. Very much so. Right. And invoked all the time in Christian music and gospel. Yes, and yes. So Ezekiel is a good bridge. It's interesting that you chose the chariot because in some ways it's that's an eternal image, a timeless image, rather than an end. Whereas the dry bones is more of a end apocalyptic of days, image. Yes, yeah, right. yeah. So it's an interest that alone, that time scale, I think capture some of the innate ambiguity about the end of days that's built into our literature, mm -hmm. which refuses easy, visual, Dante-esque narrative. Yes, I although can... Dante's more complex about it. <laughs> no, I don't mean that he, Dante's easy, I mean that he's visual, that he gives you a visual language to, mm -hmm. to work in. Yes, and indeed, the major, very large-scale piece that I did for the Huntington was a 28th by 12-foot mural on paper that was Canto Five of the Inferno. So I have been very involved with Dante. Yeah, so, and you've spent time in Italy. And you yes, don't, you don't, right. You were probably in Florence itself, so oh, uh, I spent, Dante, Yeah, I've sure lived in Florence as well. He's a good friend of yours, yes, I'm sure. Yes, Perugia and Rome, yes. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now. Back to our podcast. I want to ask you if there's a part of either your art or your artistic persona, because as you said, you're a, a prominent Jewish artist here, mm -hmm. especially in Southern California, but really worldwide. Is there some aspect of either your artistic persona or your art itself that you feel is vulnerable or tends to be misunderstood? Have you received a certain kind of question that you feel misses what you were trying to get at. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking. I think yeah. artists tend, in my mind, at least in my awareness of public intellectual conversations, there's a tremendous tendency to say the art speaks for itself, and artists often are very reluctant to, to interpret their own art uh, for fear of being coercive, I suppose. I get that, but I sometimes want to push the artist to, to tell us where they're coming from. And if there is a place whence the artist comes, then that also implies that there's a place that really isn't where the artist is coming from, even remotely. And sometimes maybe you meet that. You know, I think I've been very fortunate. And, you know, some of it certainly is through my own efforts at communication. Mm. Because my role as, for instance, the founder of the Jewish Arts Initiative, the director of the Initiative for Israeli Arts and Humanities here at USC, and some national roles I've had among artists and art historians. Yeah, I was president of the College Art Association. I've had more of a bully pulpit than most artists. Uh, and I've also it. done quite a bit of writing about Jewish art. Right. And, you know, conferences where I'm the one who was asked to address this topic. So I don't feel as marginalized as a voice as many artists do. I also don't subscribe to we shouldn't talk about it, it should all be in the art. I think that's nonsense. All art can be talked about 
musical, theatrical, visual, including architectural. By, including by the artist. The art. Including by the artist. You know, we can be part of the conversation. Among the abstract expressionists, famously, you know, the artists were sidelined and Greenberg was allowed to talk. Rosenberg was allowed to talk. Notice who, notice these last names too. Uh, (laughs) Point taken. So I have suffered less from that. Part of it's generational, but a large part of it is I really believe the artist should have a voice and can talk about the art without diminishing it. You know, that aesthetic uh, is over. You're you're taking it from the position of the artist being sidelined. I actually take it from, I hear it from the opposite perspective, which is that the artist refuses to talk about his or her art. And, and, And it sounds to me like an ego thing where the artist is saying, my art should be so complete as to speak for itself so that I shouldn't have to. I, I really think it's an abstract expressionist thing. thing. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as common now. Mm. I think artists are, are more willing to, to right. talk. Right. Uh, you know, it's just not part of the aesthetic fundamental aesthetic or the cultural conversation right or the cultural conversation so and it's true I've seen you in many fora and I know that you get out there as it were you said and uh, you're part of the conversation and I also am really trying to create opportunities for other artists and younger artists so that they'll also have this opportunity to discuss and explore and ponder so tell us about a very large piece called the scroll Mm -hmm. which is housed now at the Scribble Cultural Center. It is a 94-foot drawing in a scroll format. It was shown originally at the Hebrew Union College in New York, and it happened because of an opportunity that I was given to do a really large piece there in 1985. Yeah, 85 was when it was first shown. It's unusual in its scale, And, frankly, it's ambition Mm -hmm. because it takes in the holidays for a year, life cycle for the life of an individual. So different timescales. And some autobiography as well. So it's an interweaving of a number of different themes, but it's ambitious. And, of course, I had the space to be ambitious. 94 feet by 10 feet is... That's big, yeah. Yeah. By 10 feet, 94 by 10. Yeah. Oh, so it's... uh, Roughly in the shape of a scroll, but when I think of a scroll, I maybe think 94 feet, but I only think three feet high. Yeah, it's, it's no, ten. no, no. It's it's more of a mural size. Wow. Yeah. And I ultimately did another very large piece for the Jewish Federation in New York. Mm. On the seventh floor of their building is a permanent installation of a mural that is 10 feet, or maybe it's 11 feet, by 28 feet, which is uh, 100 years of Jewish immigration which allowed me to also address some Holocaust imagery because it's the last hundred years. In fact, the very final image in the mural, the upper right-hand corner, is the Twin Towers because it's the year 2000 that the mural ends. Oh, wow. And that was a way of signaling. It's like dating it. Right. Yeah. It it may be off the wall, but I'm, I'm thinking when you speak of murals and we speak of the fact that you are willing to tackle a big potent story in a mural I tend to think of Diego Rivera because he also had his national ethnic mm-hmm. story embedded in it and <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if if he resonates with you and I mean, we've spoken about Italy but yes. not uh... when I was a child one of my father's closest friends was a man named Hans Tigert he was an interior designer 
and he lived not in a conventional house, but more like a studio house combination, which is what I live in. When you entered his living room, which was two, you know like two stories high, the whole wall that you were facing had a series of Diego Rivera drawings. And I was fascinated as a child by these Diego Rivera drawings. And, you know, there they were. It wasn't a museum. It was in his home. You know, ultimately, you know, I saw, yeah, I spent time in Detroit where the big Diego Rivera murals are and the Detroit Institute of Art. So I I had a lot of exposure. And, of course, I always knew Frida Kahlo. Not only was this wonderful woman artist, but she was, her father was Jewish. Jewish, right. Although I don't know the degree to which she absolutely accepted that uh, yeah or downright passively rejected it is what I would say she didn't make it a part of her thing yeah I think that's true but I still knew it (laughs) right 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 and and it's in in, in her rise to prominence posthumously she's also gotten some play on that aspect of her of her identity yeah. yeah we've focused on the Jewish component of your artistic identity and how that comes from your biography and your identity as a woman artist. Is there anywhere where those two things diverge, where you can't tackle, where you need space to tackle one in the absence of the other? They're integrated in your personality, but maybe there's an expression artistically where you've really had to sideline one completely in order to get what you were trying to get at for the other. That's an interesting question. No one's ever really asked me that question. I think the answer is that it hasn't been a problem. I have not felt divided between women and being a Jew. It's really, and being an artist, all of these things are very integrated. I mean, the primary sources of my work are art historical, historical, and personal, and they're not in conflict. I've never been in denial about any of those aspects of my identity. I'm so grateful that I haven't been because I think one would pay a price. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not. I embrace it all. And you live in a universe where you can. And partly because I created that universe. You know, the Fair women's enough. movement that started really in the early 70s, I was, I was in the room right. um, over and over again. I think the advantage for women who are Jewish, and when you look at the women's movement, the percentage of another, Jewish women another is disproportion. totally disproportionate. Think about this mother I described, and I haven't managed to talk about her mother, who marched with the suffragettes. I mean, mm-hmm. my grandmother never came over without a pamphlet in her hand. Mm-hmm. You know, she was always campaigning for something. So I had these really strong women in my background which is part of the Jewish tradition. The woman of valor sits at the gate and manages things, you know. That's worth really reading carefully. (laughs) The women's movement, again, you know, this is a realm in which Jewish women predominated. And I always felt at home. You know, this was destined to be because of my my background. I see it. My question comes from wondering if there's something I'm not seeing, but I mm. but clearly there's not nothing I'm not seeing. I, <laughs> I get I get it, and I know you well enough to know the integrated components of your personality. So, the Jewish themes are evident in your work, and we see them overlapping in these historical and autobiographical themes. What inspires you most? What do you find yourself returning to? What, what do you draw from in terms of the great Jewish themes in your artwork? Well, as I've 
said I was raised in this very activist Jewish family, but not with a very good Jewish education. Mm. We didn't belong to a synagogue. I really, you know, understood a lot about Jewish history. The Holocaust was something that was talked about a lot. And when I went to live in Paris very early on, and I was, how old was I? I was like 22. I uh, spent a lot of time with my Jewish-Polish relatives in Paris who had survived the Holocaust by living for two years in the south of France in a haystack. So, you know, it was not some abstract, abstract dead history. Yeah, uh, and I was very, very close to the family of my my first boyfriend, who that's a whole very long story of how his mother survived uh, Auschwitz. So it it wasn't something I was just reading in history books. It was very present, and I was involved with people who were survivors, and really had a very strong feeling of there but for the grace of God go I because you know we were just someone hadn't immigrated right right and then a great gift was getting involved in USC Hillel they Rabbi Roy Furman was the early director and it was very deserted frankly and how am I going to get people in he said to me I said well make an art gallery out of your major space, which he did, and of course that was really helpful. And then Rabbi Laura Geller came as the director and became a very dear friend and opened up the Jewish world, uh, particularly the Reformed Jewish world, to me. And I, you know, ultimately, um, when she went to Temple Emanuel, I became a and am to this day a very, very active member. So the richness of my Jewish life really has to do with the, the gift of the friendship and teaching of people that we all know and love, you know, that we have in common. I have benefited enormously from knowing a lot of the people involved in the reform movement. You know, it's really enriched my life incredibly. And going back to the integrated components of your personality, these themes emerge, Jewish women, Jewish history, that we see so prominently in your art. Yes, absolutely. I'm grateful for your art and to be your colleague, and I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about such a Well, it's, it's been a pleasure, and I want to also thank you. You know, we, in many different aspects of our lives, you know, USC, Hebrew Union College, have really collaborated and it's been very rich and supportive for me likewise thank you you've been listening to the college commons bully pulpit podcast produced by the hebrew union college jewish institute of religion we hope you enjoyed this podcast and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu